0: Guys, can have a seat this morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Well, happy New Year's. Hopefully, you guys had a great week uh, with holidays, Christmas, and uh, this New Year's. Um, welcome to the Rock Community Church. If you're new, we would uh, just like to welcome you and we're glad you're here. If you're not new and you've been here before, I am thankful that, thankful that you're here. Um, what a great time. John is actually hiding in the back there he told me not to point him out but <laughs> he's taken this week off so I get to be here with you my name is Rob Selleck um, John will be back next week and we're going to be in Romans chapter 5 um, for the last 72 hours John sent me a couple texts hey man I'm praying for you love your brother you're going to do a great job and tell everyone all three texts. tell everyone that I love him. so I want to make sure that I do that um Because he does. Um, So, he loves you. He told me to do something else. He told me to preach, preach, preach. So, we will do that this morning also. Um, The word testimony. Testimony. The definition is a statement of fact and truth or a profession of faith. Testimony. A statement of fact or truth or a profession of faith it comes from the same word as testify to give an account to something testimony in the christian culture we use the word testimony to refer to the story of when we came to faith right our testimony the time when when we became a christian testimonies are a powerful thing powerful thing i don't know if any of you have ever had the opportunity to, to share your testimony with somebody or a group of people. I remember um, probably about 10 years ago, I was asked to share my testimony, and I quickly said, okay, this is before I started teaching. I didn't know what I was getting into. After I agreed, they said, oh, great, thanks for doing this. Um, Can you go ahead and write it out? It needs to be about five minutes long. (laughs) Like, oh, five minutes long. So I went through this process of writing out my testimony and it was really quite an experience if you've never just written out your testimony to stop in and, and put down on paper kind of a timeline of and remembering back where you were before Christ. What was going on in your head? What were the things that you valued? What were you seeking? Where was your hope at? What were you missing? And for me, it was just this time of really reflecting and remembering the transformation that took place in my life and what Christ has done for me. Testimonies. We can share testimonies, or something else can happen with the testimony, and I imagine most of you have experienced this, somebody sharing their testimony to you, or you being able to hear their testimony, their story of when they came to Christ. Oh, six, eight. Nine months ago, Anthony did a night of worship and they did the cardboard testimonies. Remember that? If you haven't seen it, you can look it up on YouTube. There's some great uh, videos on there. And they hold up the cardboard on stage and it kind of shows what life was like before redemption. Like this statement of kind of hopelessness. And then they flip the card over, right? And it's their new condition that they are in Christ. Listening to somebody else's testimony. Powerful. I remember about two years ago, we were starting a a new small group, a Bible study with men, and I was joining it. I didn't know that many of the guys in there, so if you're a guy and you've ever been in a Bible study, the first couple weeks are kind of quiet, because we're guys, right? We don't like to talk too much until we feel comfortable, so we're all sitting there thinking, man, what my wife get me into? (laughs) This week three, and the leader of the group says, oh, let's all go around and share our testimonies everyone's oh great and this is something this is going to take like five ten minutes real quick everyone do it and it ended up going like an hour and 45 minutes and we didn't finish and it was just so interesting listening to these guys these are guys i'm looking at man you guys are really great mature christian strong men and listening to their testimonies going around the room i realized we really aren't all that different the details of our testimonies are different but our position of where we were before Christ is really all the same. I think, wow. Remember, there's a couple guys in the rooms that really caught me off guard. They're telling their testimony, and one guy goes, oh yeah, and then I had a probation officer, and I left the state. And I'm thinking, wow, that's, that's crazy. Other guys tell me that he was a drug addict and all this stuff. When he was saved, the next guy was in jail. By the fourth guy, I'm checking my pocket, making sure I saw my wallet. And this is a real ragtag group of guys that really needed a Savior testimonies they're powerful we can give our testimonies we can hear others testimonies there's a third thing and this might be perhaps the most powerful of all have you ever been a witness i mean firsthand witness to somebody else going through their testimony somebody that you've known for a long time maybe a family member maybe a friend maybe a coworker but somebody that you've known before christ and you got to be the witness to see the transformation happen in their life I've had the experience of doing, uh, of being this uh, witness several times, knowing people firsthand before, and a lot of times people that aren't so fun to be around. Kind of stinkers, you could say. The type of people when you're around, it kind of, at least for me, it motivated me to go home and do a better job raising my kids, so I could raise them up hopefully not to be like these people, and to see God pursue them and get a hold of their lives, and they respond and totally change. Testimonies are a powerful, powerful thing. So, with that in mind, when you think about testimonies, I want you to apply it to this. Now, let's think about witnessing. Let's think about evangelism. Let's think about reaching out to the lost. All right? When we do that, what makes the most impact? Now, obviously, we need to proclaim the truth of God's words. Obviously, we want to articulate his promises, but Our part of it, when we go out and to evangelize, to share the good news, what should we do? What's best? Is it to present it in a logical argument? Is it to present it and be real reasonable with the people? Here's one that's really popular. To promise the promise of prosperity with the gospel. Present it with the promise of eternal life. I mean, what is it that can impact a person to embrace Jesus Christ? I'll tell you what's really powerful. The testimony of a transformed life. You can go through the history of the Christian church and you can know that the church had a message that was believable when it demonstrated transformed lives. And what's cool about this? Jesus himself in his ministry, when he walked this earth, he knew this. He knew that there was power in testimony. And he would oftentimes present a powerful testimony to show the power of his power to transform one's life. Now, he couldn't actually use his own testimony because he was Jesus, he was perfect, he was holy. He was never a sinner, therefore not really being transformed. But on multiple occasions, he would use somebody else who had been transformed, use them as an instrument to give account to the power of the gospel. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the story we're going to study today. If you will, turn in your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking through verses 36. Don't freak out. All the way through 50. 15 verses. But we're going to be able to cover all this because it's a story and it needs to be dealt with as a unit. The story begins in 36, and it is a narrative. We'll treat it as a narrative. We don't per se need an outline this morning. We're just going to flow with the story. Before we start, I don't want you to get this story that we're going to talk about today confused with another story in the Bible that is very similar. There's another story in the Bible about a woman anointing Jesus' head, and that story, not the one today, but that story is in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and John 12. Those are the same story. This is not that story. This is another time. This is another place. These are different people. These are different circumstances. That story happened in Judea. This happens in Galilee. Now, why they're so confusing is they're both both hosted by a man. Both men are named Simon. The Simon in the other story is the leopard, Simon the leper. The, The Simon in this story is Simon the Pharisee. Two different stories. Two different times, two different groups of people, two different circumstances. So let's look at verse 36. One of the Pharisees was requesting him, Jesus, to dine with him. Now, as I said, he is in Galilee. This is a part of Jesus' Galilean ministry. He's been there, he's teaching, and he's preaching on a regular basis. More than likely, he's already spoken in their synagogue. This could be an invitation to an afternoon meal kind of after the Sabbath synagogue meeting, which Jesus might have been the teacher, it would have been customary for the the local rabbi to invite the visiting rabbi. Kind of like if we had a, a guest preacher, John and Kay might take him out to lunch afterwards for coming here. We don't really know too much about the specifics of this event because they really aren't all too important to the story. But the Pharisee was requesting Jesus to dine with him now on the surface this kind of seems like a pretty nice thing kind of like this pharisee had some personal interest in jesus like he was open to what he had to say let me tell you that's really not the case the story's going to make that clear this was a man who belonged to a close-knit group of people called scribes and pharisees this group they were the law keepers they were the people who set the standard to which everyone had to adhere Everyone would be measured. In essence, they were legalists. They were the self-righteous. Again, this tightly knit, in sync group of people. They were all on the same page. They, they communicated often. They had the same agenda. And The truth is the Pharisees already have rendered a verdict on this man named Jesus. The scribes and the Pharisees already collectively determined that this man was a blasphemer. Why? He was a blasphemer because he forgave sins. And so he acted as if he was God, going around forgiving sins. They did not like this. In fact, they hated him for, for quite a few reasons. They hated him because he spent time with outcasts, right? The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the low-life sinners, all kinds, the drunkards. They saw him as somebody that belonged with the type of people he hung out with, outcasts. They thought, man, he had continually defiled himself by hanging around these defiling people. These were people that the Pharisees would have never been cut dead around. And the message that he taught, boy, did it irritate them. It was a message that insulted their self-righteousness. So this group of Pharisees, they've already made their conclusion. In reality, they were in the process of accumulating, incriminating evidence against this one called Jesus. This story is a part of that fact-finding this Pharisee has in mind to try to get Jesus in a situation by his own words he can incriminate himself he's going to get some evidence against this Jesus so he invites him to his house he's no friend of Jesus at all though he does pretend to measure a measure of friendship he's the hypocritical enemy he hated everything about Jesus this is just one small story in a much greater story. This is really just the beginning of their plot against Jesus. Things escalate. If you keep reading on through Luke, you'll see the plot thickens. Start getting to Luke chapter 11. And they turn up the heat on this one Jesus. So all this is mounting. And this Pharisee is a part of this accumulating force trying to gather evidence against Jesus. I mean, here Jesus is in his hometown. This is his time to shine his time to kind of step up so he takes advantage of the situation invites jesus to a meal rest of verse 36 and he entered the pharisee's house and reclined at the table now they didn't do fast food like we do fast food today there were meals i'm sure more on the fly than this one but this wasn't one of those meals this was going to be a prolonged thing they were going to be here for a while so it says they were going to recline Now here Jesus is willing to go in a house of a man that he knew was a hypocrite. A a man that he knew had evil intentions towards him. A man that was going to do everything he could to somehow get incriminating evidence against Jesus by something he did or said. But nonetheless, here's Jesus, gracious as he always is, coming to seek and to save that which is lost, is willing to go into the man's house because he's willing to expose this wicked, hypocritical Pharisee to the power that he has to transform. So he enters the Pharisee's house. Now the men would have most likely been laying on their stomach on a small, thin pad with some pillows. They had been leaning on their left hand, using the right hand to gesture and to eat. The table would have been low to the ground as... Is customary in these times, and they would have been sit, sitting there face in towards the table. So all their heads would be around their table, laying down, and their feet would be far away from them. There's a reason their feet would be far away from those them, and I have practical experience on this. <coughs> Every winter, we have the privilege of taking your sweet kids to winter camp. Is it four or five weeks for taking the elementary? In seven weeks, we're taking junior high and high school. If you haven't signed them up, a little plug in here. Go ahead and sign them up. We'd love for them to come. The first day of camps awesome. A lot of a lot of energy. And we, we meet to go to camp, and they're already dressed in their snow gear. they got their boots and pants and jackets. and I mean we got a two-hour bus ride. We go on the bus ride. We get up there, we get our cabin assignments, we get set up, and the cabins aren't very big. Just kind of that little corner of it, and there's probably 12, 14 bunks. That's a lot of high schoolers in a small little room, a little wall unit heater. And uh, the kids are amped up, and the day's been full. There's activities, there's chapel, there's worship, there's free time, on and on and on. They're going. And then it comes about, oh, 10, 10.30, it's cabin time. And this is a real art to get all the kids into their cabin and start toning things down. Right, Ryan? You got to really be on your A game. And then about 11 o'clock, all right, let's just get in the bunks. Let's just, you know, we can still talk. We'll leave the lights on. And there's this progression that goes on to kind of get everyone to go to bed. But through this, something happens. You, if you ever go to camp with us, you won't miss this. Getting ready for bed, the kids take off those boots. And they peel off those wool socks. These are your kids, I remind you. We just love them. See, these were still men, and they still had stinky feet, so they would lay with their heads there, their feet far away from the table as possible. See, I guess you could say, literally, the taller your guest, the better. It would get them down there. Sanitation isn't what, wasn't what it was, is today. The roads were either muddy or they were dusty. Feet were an issue, especially in a prolonged meal like this. Now, it was common to invite a visiting rabbi to a Sabbath meal or to hold some type of special banquet in order to bring them honor. And at these banquets, they would discuss theological issues. They would discuss issues of society, discuss issues of the culture that would impact the things around them. It was different than like a, a special event today. What we do today is, right, we invite special people over, we close the door, we lock the gate, and if there's still a problem, we hire a guard, keep people out this culture they would actually invite the people that they wanted to be there and they would be the people around the table but they would keep the doors open it was common actually in their culture for people to come in the local population even the lower class they would come in and it was was all right to do that and this was a time it became uh, like entertainment a place for them to get information kind of stay up on the times to learn now they weren't really supposed to talk or anything but they could quietly stand there and observe what was going on right every town has their celebrities their their a list and those would be the people that were invited the table would be in the middle of the room everyone that was invited to the table like i said would be leaning into this table but the perimeter wall there would be enough room for those local people to come in and experience the event themselves, to hear the discussion. They wanted to learn from it. They were to remain inconspicuous, right? Seen but not heard was the idea. Entertainment, amusement, information. That is no doubt what occurred on this occasion. It wasn't unusual to have people around. It wasn't even unusual to have people of lower class. Even the poor people would come, hoping to get maybe some leftovers, some scraps off the table, maybe even enough to bring home some food for their family verse 37 that's the scenario there was this there was a woman in the city who was a sinner and when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the pharisee's house she brought an alabaster vial of perfume if you read out of the king james or the new king james it translates this verse a little bit better it starts off the verse that says and behold Now behold, that's a little more accurate to the original language. Literally, behold, indicating that this verse, something startling happens. Something shocking is now taking place in 37. Remind you, it wasn't shocking for a stranger to come in. It wasn't shocking even for a poor person to come in, a local neighbor. But behold, it was shocking that there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. A woman in the city. I mean, she lived there. Everyone knew her. She plied her trade in that town. She was known to all. And she was a sinner sinner is the term that's used in luke multiple times oftentimes used to 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 refer to somebody's spiritual condition that they are a sinner they are apart from god they are not a believer in christ but also in their culture in their society sinner was a term that they used to categorize certain groups of people kind of in a cultural basis you would fall into this group sinner if you did certain traits was a little bit different. It described people that were kind of a, a, a low life. If you were a guy, if you were a male, you would fall into this category of sinner if you were a tax collector, if you were a drunkard, if you were a tanner. Interestingly enough, I found out that if you even were a camel driver, socially you'd be considered a sinner because you were dealing with unclean animals all day. But if you were a female, if you were a woman, there was only one trade that was synonymous for sinner. Any guesses? Should I get my bad joke last night? No. One field of work for sinner. It was a prostitute. A woman who chose to be a professional adulteress. Immoral and filthy. Impure, perverse. Worst of all, living a blatantly sinful life at a public level, Now this is the kind of woman we're introduced to here. And it says that she learned, verse 37, she learned that Jesus was reclining at this table in the Pharisee's house. She would have known the general p- protocol, that the doors would be open, that access to Jesus would be available. It's not like what we think of today. Different world. She knew that Jesus was going to be there, and she comes with a plan. I mean, look, it says that she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. Now, perfume was just a part of being a woman. Many Jewish women had around their neck a vial of perfume. They keep it on a cord. They keep it with them most of the time. It was kind of like a deodorizing agent, right? Very different type of world back then. The kind of perfume that's indicated here is not some cheap oil, though. This is very expensive, extremely costly perfume. We know that because it's in an alabaster container. Uh, That uh, speaks a lot about it. An alabaster container specifically was quarried and carved in Egypt. It was a type of marble, a very fine, refined kind of marble. they would make that into an alabaster container and fill it with the most costly perfume, and then they'd permanently plug it shut. We know quite a bit about these containers that women use for their perfume. Archaeologists have found literally thousands of them, made from a myriad of different materials, determined that alabaster was reserved for the most expensive one of the few containers that they literally permanently shut you couldn't open it because the 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 perfume that they would put in it was so expensive that they didn't want anything to escape no fragrance nothing to evaporate so literally when you wanted to use it you would have to break the container and pour it out was a one-time deal like most high-end really expensive things not very practical it was also common in those days for men to wear some type of oiled fragrance for deodorizing purpose as well. But here she is, knowing what Jesus is, she's got a plan. Entering, wants to go into the house, and she brings with her this alabaster vial of perfume. Even the word brought, it's really interesting. It's K-O-M-I-Z-O. It, it's a special word. It means taking great care of, carefully tending to something. She was cautious, she was particular, and she was tender. I mean, this was delegate cargo. This woman apparently came to the event with the view to anoint Jesus' head. That would have been customary, to go and anoint somebody's head. That was more than likely her plan. And with this costly perfume, it indicates to us that she was somewhat successful as a prostitute. Most of them, prostitutes in those days, made good money. And she must have, because she was able to purchase this costly alabaster flask of perfume. That more than likely she had plans to pour out on the head of Jesus. That was her objective. That was her goal. Now we find in verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet. I mean, wow. She comes in. Let's for illustration's uh, sake say that this was an evening event. Perhaps lighted by candles. The candles would have been placed in the middle of the room and around the perimeter, around the walls, it would have been a little bit darker. And here she is. She slips in. I mean, people are welcome, but not her. She should not be there. In fact, this is a violent outrage of the purity of this home, this Pharisee's home, for a prostitute to be inside. Not okay. She slips in there, anyways, perhaps looking around, trying to identify where's Jesus. Trying to take her place, slowly moving, till she's standing there at his feet probably wondering in her mind how and when would she have an opportunity to get close enough to to move up where it'd be appropriate to anoint his head with the costly perfume she wanted she must have wanted to do it so desperately i mean it's shocking that she's even there it doesn't tell us much to the response to any of that effect but obviously she was in a place where she shouldn't have been but perhaps that dim light her discreet movement and she wasn't immediately noticed by the people who would have recognized her she kind of stayed out of the way, stayed in the background near the feet of Jesus, standing there, no doubt pondering, what am I going to do next? How am I going to get to the place where I can anoint his head? That's what's on her heart. That's what she wanted to do with a sacrificial expression of love and, and generosity towards him. And she stands there amazingly. It says, standing at the, behind him at his feet, comma, what's it say, weeping, flooded with the reality of the kind of woman she was. She's weeping, overwhelmed with emotion. And she lets loose with what Luther calls heart water. It burst out of her eyes as if the emotional dam went to pieces and the flood begins. She's weeping because of where she is. And it says she began to wet his feet with her tears. Crying, as we all would in a public place. Weeping, naturally starting to look down, probably conceal herself. And when she looks down, standing there at the feet of Jesus, she sees all the things that the host never provided for Jesus, never washed his feet, never even provided a servant to wash his feet. I can just imagine each tear falling from her eyes, the ones that hit his feet making that dark brown spot from the dust. And she notices that his feet are filthy. And this is really a social disgrace. This was something the host should have already taken care of. And since the tears, here she is, are profusely running down her face, she has no water other than those that she allows to fall on his feet. And this is an outburst of emotion and it's gaining momentum. It says that she began to wet his feet. Greek word B-R-E-C-H-O literally is the word for rain. She rained tears on his feet. She had no water but her heart water and that was enough to wash his feet. Her emotions are strong. Before she can think any further about how she can anoint his head, now she's caught up in the fact that no one has given this man the simplest dignity by simply washing his feet. And so her tears are sufficient. Supply of liquid to do that. And then it says she kept wiping them with her hair of her head. She didn't have a towel. If we understood their culture, and I just read you that verse, we would have gasped. She wiped them with her hair. That means she took down her hair. For a woman in this culture, and this time, to take down her hair, to reveal the, the full color, the full length, the full beauty of her hair was major no-no. If you were married, it was justifiable cause for divorce. I found out they gave me a social equivalent, cultural equivalent. It would be like a woman taking off her blouse in church. And that's what she's doing. She had no choice. But to use her hair to clean and dry his feet, she was manifesting the kind of non-self-conscious, shameless emotion and affection in doing this. And once his feet were clean, it goes on and says that she was kissing his feet. That also is an intense word. Not a sexual word it's it's used in Luke 15:20 of the father's kisses the prodigal son right when the son comes back and it says the father grabs his robe pulls it up that was disrespectful for a man to show his legs and ran down the street that was disrespectful for a man to run in public pulls it up and and, and falls upon his son and falls on his neck and kisses him it's the same word it's an intense embraceive type of hug clinging to hug or kiss And there she is at the feet. The first tears start falling on his feet and then she realizes that she can use those tears to clean his feet, a courtesy that hasn't been given to him. And then she takes her hair down and and uses her hair to dry and clean the feet. Meanwhile, we don't know how the table's reacting. Jesus obviously knows what's going on. In fact, he actually planned for this to go on. She's still doing this, more than likely in the background. And once the feet are clean... She's so completely swept away with emotion that she embraces his feet and it tells us that she continues to do it with these kissings as a continual expression of affection and now comes the final act of generosity, anointing them with perfume. She decides now, I can't wait any longer. There might not be a chance to get up there and anoint his head. Swept away by emotion, she snaps the alabaster bottle. She pours the perfume out on his feet if the room was unaware what was going on at this point before this point they were aware now the fragrance of that perfume would have been strong i mean if you think about it let's be practical and look at where we're at in this story this practically could be a very difficult situation for jesus i mean in the first place she's a known prostitute she's shamefully taken down her her hair She's done this in the view of others and the Pharisee. She's touching him. Not only is she touching him, but she's washing her feet with her hair. And not only that, but she continues to embrace his feet and, and kiss her feet, expressing all this emotion. Now she's pouring out perfume and rubbing it on him. I mean, this could be a serious breach of modesty. It'd be very easy to say. Remember, the goal of this Pharisee is to incriminate Jesus, to find something wrong with him, to, something to blame him for. To throw out there, how in the world uh, does this prostitute feel so familiar with Jesus? That's not a stretch. How does she know him? I mean, right, somebody might have made that obvious connection. Verse 39. Simon, the Pharisee, picks up on what's going on now. Now when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, no, he said to himself, this is Simon inside his head, no one else heard this, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman woman is who's touching him, that she is a sinner. This fascinates me. I mean, right? This is an enemy of Jesus. This is a man who's looking to incriminate him. And as much as he wanted incriminating proof that Jesus was not the Messiah, not a prophet of God, he couldn't bring himself to say that this man has familiarity with a prostitute. Didn't even go down that road. No one ever accused Jesus of anything like that. They could never go that far. There was just nothing in his life, nothing in his character. Not even his worst enemies would accuse him of that. It shows a real measure of respect in my eyes that they did actually have a true understanding of his goodness and his purity. That the worst a man can say is he just doesn't know who or what kind of person she is. Literally, he's chalking this up to ignorance? It's ignorance. He just doesn't know. He just doesn't know. Ah, but wait, wait, wait. This proves that he's not a prophet. His mind was still going 100 miles an hour. His wheels were turning. He doesn't know. It proves he's not a prophet because if he was a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who's touching him. He would know if he was a prophet that she's a sinner. I mean, we all know she's a sinner and we aren't prophets. And aren't prophets supposed to come to God to tell us what we don't know? How is he going to tell us what we don't know when he doesn't even know what we already know? He doesn't have any spiritual insight here. Aha! He doesn't have any divine wisdom. I mean, let's face it, no sensible teacher, no one trying to be accepted as a prophet, no one trying to be accepted as the Messiah would ever allow a woman like this to touch him. So he must not know who she is. And if he doesn't know who she is, then he's not special. Aha! I got my plan. I figured it out. Simon... Make no mistake about it, Simon was disgusted by this scene. Simon was disgusted by what this woman did. Simon was disgusted by what Jesus let her do. But let me tell you, Simon was 100% satisfied with what happened because he knew that it justified in his mind that Jesus was no prophet at all, or else he would have had the divine insight into who or what this woman was and never allowed her to defile him or even touch him. I mean, after all, she was well-known in the city. You guys remember that game Clue? <clears throat> I was never good at it. But when it wasn't my turn, it was going to be my turn, and, and right, you try to guess who did it and where, where they did it and what they used to do it with. In my head, I always build up these cases thinking, I absolutely got it figured out. I can't wait for my turn because I'm going to show everyone that I figured out the game. And then when it's my turn and I present, oh, as the butler who did it in the library with the candlestick. And it's like, nope. Or it's like watching a good mystery movie with a lot of twists and turns. And and you're confident now. It's towards the end of the movie. You're confident. You finally got it all figured out. You've got it all figured out, who and what and where and when. And then the last scene, oh, I guess I was totally wrong. This is Simon right now building that case up in his head. Unfortunately, I can understand. I can relate to him. Have you ever done that? Just gotten some information. You start building that case up. All inside the confines of your head. Justifying all the facts. Putting all the pieces together. So certain you know what's going to happen. Why they did what and what's wrong and what's right. Oftentimes to find out that we shouldn't have built that case in our head. Way off on a tangent. Poor Simon. Simon's doing this with Jesus. And it's time now for Jesus to talk to Simon. Look at verse 40. And Jesus answered him, wait a second, what did he answer? Remember, Simon didn't ask anything. This was all in Simon's head. That's why you don't play these games, especially with Jesus, because he answers what Simon was thinking. I mean, what irony is that? Simon, in his head, concluded that Jesus didn't know who this woman was, therefore he's not a prophet. But Jesus knew what Simon was thinking. Jesus knew who this woman was. He knew what she was thinking. And he says, Simon, verse 40, I have something to say to you. I strongly imagine that this interrupted any conversation going on in the room. Simon, I, I have something to say to you. And he replies, say it, teacher. Speak on. What, what, what do you have to say? Ask me. Verse 41, a certain money lender, and you know they love to talk in analogies, We call them parables. It's a real simple earthly story that has a deeper spiritual meaning. It's an illustration. It says a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Verse 42. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Simple story. There's a money lender. Money tree, payday in advance. What's another one of those names? Cash advance. A money lender, probably not very good with money, not very smart with finances, didn't really know what he's doing. He made his living off loaning money. If you make your living off loaning money, you've got to get your money, or else you're not a very good money lender. So these two people come to this money lender, a professional money lender. How's it going, Pam? <laughs> get in your way. <laughs> a professional money lender, they come and one asks for 500 denaries. A year and a half worth of wage gives it to him. The other asks for 50 denarii, roughly two months worth of wage. They can't pay it back. And the money lender says, all right, I'll graciously, it says, forgive you both. I mean, that's that's a nice little story, right? I mean, come on, can you imagine? Can you imagine if the people who owned the lien on your car called up one day and said hey where's your payment and you're like i couldn't pay this month and oh, it's all right you no, no no need for anything else we're actually going to forgive it i'm putting the pink slip in the mail as soon as we get off the phone can you imagine if you went to work on monday and the person next to you told you that story you be like what let's think about this the mortgage on your house The people who hold the mortgage on your house and you're late on a payment. Hey, you're late. I know, and you give them all these excuses. They say, stop, stop, stop. We don't need all the excuses. You you must be on hard times. We understand that. You know what? We're just going to mail you the title. Think of your relative calling you up today and telling you that story. That'd be more than significant, right? I mean, that doesn't happen. This word graciously forgave, it's it's quite a sophisticated word but in the simplest form it's a business term literally just to mean to forgive debt it's a theological term as well paul uses it of the forgiveness that god gives us in christ see they had a debt they couldn't pay so the money lender graciously forgave them both this is a noble this is a generous thing you know what makes us so generous this is something we should keep in mind what makes this so generous that anytime somebody forgives a debt that they themselves incur the debt in full? I mean, if I lend you 500 denarii and you can't pay it, and I say, ah, oh, it's all right, I forgive you. In essence, I now incur that debt completely. That debt is now mine, the cost is now transferred to me, and I have to understand. Well, that, this is to understand, to get insight into the forgiveness that God gives us. See, when God forgave your sins, he then incurred the debt. Jesus Christ died to pay it. The debt doesn't go away. It still has to be paid, but the forgiver incurs it and pays it. And so it's not just forgiveness and it's done. It's forgiveness, then the debt is transferred to the forgiver. I and mean, this is a generous story. The debt doesn't disappear. The forgiver incurs, and that's true of God, who incurred our full debt when he forgave you and I. Jesus paid it. And he says this little story, and asked Simon at the end of it, verse 42. So which of them, this is an interesting question, so which of them will love him more? I mean, right, that both debtors were forgiven, but who's going to have the greater love for the moneylender? Who's going to have the greater love for the forgiver? Oh, that's simple, right? Verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who he forgave more jesus said to him hey yeah you judged correctly ding 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 you got the right answer you got it that's right simon whoever got forgiven the most is going to be showing the most love i mean that's pretty simple right then it starts to build up here in verse 44 it starts to make sense says he turns to the woman but we need to understand something we have now established a principle here God, Jesus has established a principle of Simon. The principle is great love comes from great forgiveness. They've established that. In fact, Simon said it It came out of his brain, out of his mouth. He established that principle. He said, where you see great love, you have seen great forgiveness. The greater the forgiveness, the greater the love. So verse 44, turning towards the woman who's still down at the feet. I imagine everyone else in the room now was turned toward the woman as well and he said to simon you see this woman of course he saw her back in verse 39 it says he saw her you see this woman i'm seeing great love from this woman i'm saying great love what what do you mean well let's read it he says i entered your house you gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears wiped them with her hair you gave me no kiss but since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. I mean, come on, you didn't even put common olive oil on his head. Verse 47, For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. For she loved much, but he is who is forgiven little, loves little. I want you to notice a, a little statement in that those verses we just read, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. That is written specifically in the perfect tense. Meaning it didn't happen right then and there. It happened in the past. It's perfect tense. Something that happened in the past with a continuing effect. She had already at this point been forgiven. She had been forgiven some other place, some other time, some other day maybe. She came to this event Forgiven In a state of forgiveness, seeking to find Jesus, to thank him. See, sometimes since he had come to her town, she heard the good news. She heard the gospel. She's been redeemed. She has been transformed. It's a beautiful story. Here she is. Her guilt was gone. Her shame was gone. Her life was different. And now she is longing after holy things. Righteous things are now occupying her heart. She's swept away with gratitude, swept away with affection and love for the one who had forgiven her so much that she couldn't even contain herself. The Pharisee said, when somebody has forgiven much, they, they love much. Where you see much love, you can assume what? That there's been much forgiveness. This is a transformed life. You can't explain this woman's behavior any other way. She's been forgiven. She's grateful because the bondage of her sin is gone. All the depth of guilt, it's gone. And he says, Simon, you didn't do anything for me. You showed me no honor. You showed me no respect. You showed me no affection. You gave me no sacrifice. You showed me nothing. You insulted me. with the lack of your respect and the lack of your love and the lack of your tribute I mean, you can go all the way back if you want and and look at Genesis 18, look at Genesis 29, Genesis 45, and you'll see on occasions when people came together, there were feet-washing ceremonies. There was custom to make sure everything was appropriate. You'll see that there was an embrace. There was a kiss of affection and love. This is a part of what you did. It was standard operating procedure when you received a guest. The host gave no water. She gave tears. The host gave no towel. She gave her hair. The host gave no kisses. She repeatedly kissed his feet. The host gave no, not even sheep oil, and she poured out expensive perfume. For this reason, I'm telling you, she did this because she's been forgiven much. This is what it looks like when you're forgiven, and Simon said it when he explained who would love the most. She was the 500 denary debtor who couldn't pay, but was graciously and completely forgiven. She is now in that state of forgiveness and has been. Verse 48, Jesus affirms this. Then he says to her, these are five beautiful words. Can you imagine Jesus turning to you and saying these words to you? Your sins have been forgiven. Again, it's written in the perfect tense. They have been forgiven in the past, and they have a continuing result today. He's confirming that. And the evidence is, is there from her love. She had come to Christ some other day. She had been convicted of her sins. She had repented. She had now believed. You now she's been graced with forgiveness and eternal life. And now she is loving much because she's been forgiven much. Lavish love comes from lavished forgiveness. This situation isn't just a situation that kind of worked out good, luckily for Jesus. This wasn't something that he just kind of squeaked by thinking, "Oh man, I'm glad it turned out like this. I didn't get caught. This could have been a tough dinner." This wasn't just a fluke. Things happen like this. Jesus was there for a plan. He was super intentional. Jesus is evangelizing in this story. He's reaching the lost. He's showing the self-righteous Pharisee what real transformation looks like using the testimony of this sinner to share the good news of Christ. And the people saw it. Look at verse 49. They got it." it. says, Those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sin? I mean, they knew he could teach and preach. They knew he could heal and cast out demons he can forgive sins. They knew he'd done it. It doesn't say in verse 48, God has forgiven your sins. He said, your sins have been forgiven. And she knew it was he that had done it. Her lavish love was tied to his lavish forgiveness. The people at the table, they all understood it. They said, this man forgives sin. We can see this woman's forgiven. Wait a minute, how can you see somebody's forgiven? You can't see forgiveness, can you? No, but you can see transformation. You can see the joy, the gratitude, the love, the affection. So Jesus uses this woman as a clear testimony, as his power to transform a life. This, to witness to a Pharisee the transforming power of his truth. Her salvation was evident, not by anything she said. In fact, you can go back and reread this. She said nothing. But by her love to her Savior, so profuse, so passionate, you have been and continue to be forgiven. And then in verse 50, it says to the woman, these are another five beautiful words. Your faith has saved you. As beautiful as your love is, it's, it's not your love that saved you. It's your faith that saved you. It's your faith that produced the love. It was your faith that saves you. It's always for us too. It's our faith. For by grace you are saved through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Not that of yourself, just give a, a gift of God, not of work, so that no man should boast. It's your faith that saves you, always your faith. And because your faith saved you, your love is manifested because your sins are forgiven. He says, go in peace. Go in peace. Go in God's peace and live there forever. Shalom. Studying this passage made me Think thinking of my testimony made me think God the pursuer of sinners. That's amazing. How bankrupt we are as people. I mean, if you're gonna give bailouts and you looked at mankind, it wouldn't be worth bailing out. We're so far in the red, so unworthy. We left his will in sin. And here's God, the pursuer of sinners came to save the lost. I mean, that's magnificent. And it and, and, and gives us the chance to have a testimony and restores us in such a fashion that we can stand before God and when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son. I think it's appropriate to ask ourselves a question. What is the level of your love for God? Your love for Christ. I mean, does this story seem so bizarre to you that you couldn't even fathom yourself doing what she did? Have you come to Christ in faith and embraced Him and experienced His powerful and total transformation of forgiveness so that literally you're filled with joy and gratitude and love? We should be marked like that. Men of this room, we should be marked like that. Women, That should be how we're marked, with gratitude and love for Christ. Families, marriages, the rock community church. Let's be marked by that. Profuse love for Christ. It's the single greatest proof visible to people of the power of the gospel. You can't really truly perceive how precious Christ is. It's really hard to perceive the glory of the gospel unless you're brokenhearted. And this Pharisee, instead of rejoicing with the tokens of this woman's uh, repentance, he confines his thought to her former bad character. Truth is, without free forgiveness, none of us, no matter how good you are, no matter how bad you are, none of us can escape the wrath to come this our gracious Savior has purchased with His blood that He may freely bestow it on everyone that believes in Him. Christ, by this simple parable, forced Simon, the Pharisee, to acknowledge that the greater sinner this woman had been, the greater love she ought to show him when her sins were pardoned. We need to learn here. Sin's a debt. We're all sinners. Our indebtedness is to an almighty God. And yeah, some sinners are great debtors. Oh yeah. But whether our debt is great or whether it's litter, little, it is more than we can pay. And here is God ready to forgive. His sons already purchased pardon for those who believe in him. There's a lot to learn here. We need to keep far from the proud spirit of the Pharisee. We need to be prepared to obey, love, and live for him more zealously the more we express our sorrow for sin, the more we express our love for Christ, the clearer evidence we have of the forgiveness of our sins. What a wonderful change does the grace make upon a sinner's heart. What a wonderful change does grace make upon our state standing before God. By the full remissions of all his sins through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, an ungrateful, A loveless Christian undercuts the testimony of the gospel. Let us put on display our gratitude, our lavish love for Christ, and the world will take note that our sins have truly been forgiven. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good, you are great, you are the redeemer, you are the transformer, you are the giver of life, You are the restorer of sins. Lord, You are the one who allows us to have a testimony. Lord, we stand in awe of who we are in You. That You would do that for us. Lord, we are the people that have been forgiven much, therefore, restore in our hearts a deep, passionate, flowing love for You. Lord, I thank you for everyone in this room, all the, all the people, all the families, all the kids, all the marriages, Lord. I pray your hand be upon us today and for this week. that we would start being intentional in how we live and how we love, how we interact with this world, Lord, that we might give a clear testimony that simply through our love it would point to you that there's something different in us Lord, it's in your Son's precious, glorious, holy name we all say, amen. You guys have a great week. Thank you so much.